Okay, so we're carrying on with our study through the Gospel of John. We're receiving up to chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus attend the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk a little bit about that, obviously. Um, he's obviously trying to keep a low profile. That's one thing that becomes very clear. Um, it's something that, when you read through the Gospels, it's very easy to miss. But Jesus didn't want himself known or presented to Israel until the right time. We'll see that come out quite a lot uh, through the study this evening. Um, but Jesus inevitably ends up teaching. Um, when you are full of the Holy Spirit, you cannot keep quiet. And uh, Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, uh, has opportunity to teach, so does so. Um, and we'll notice that Jesus makes the point that it's not his doctrine, it's God's. And if we are going to make noises, if we are going to speak, then we need to make sure that we're really speaking for God and for God's perspective and from God's doctrine, not our own. We shouldn't have our own agendas. Clearly, Jesus didn't have his own agenda. He'd come to do the will of the Father. Um, the question then is raised, well, exactly who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? Uh, and where is he from? And, and that's really one of the big questions for mankind. Uh, it's one of those things that each one of us has to settle for ourselves. Um, we can see Jesus make an outrageous claim, um, and that's going to then uh, see an ensuing a debate um, and naturally a division. Uh, some go with Jesus, some then go very much against him, and this, this whole thing starts to intensify. Um, in chapter 8, we're going to find that Jesus is asked, as it were, to preside over a, a kangaroo court. Uh, this is the whole thing is a big uh, fiasco, a big setup um, that we're going to see. Um, he declines and dismisses the jury. Uh, those presumed guilty are set free, and those presumed innocent are condemned. Uh, it's quite interesting as we get there, you'll see. Um, but then we go into chapter 8, and Jesus' mission is restated. Um, we've, we've talked lots about his mission, uh, that which he'd come to do. Um, but in case you've missed it in the chapter so far, we're going to have it restated for us again this evening. Uh, and again, as is often the case, we get the who gave you permission uh, question that's, that's put to Jesus. You know, you're saying these things, well, who gave you permission? And uh, I think we said in a previous study, it's so often those who are appointed by men that question those who are appointed by God. Um, and uh, Jesus' authority is then restated, and that then leads to this big question of parentage. Uh, it's quite an interesting uh, little exchange that we'll see going on between Jesus and uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders. Um, one thing that we see from these two chapters this evening is that Jesus is in complete control. Um, he's following his Father's will. He knows where he is. You know, and regardless of the state of the world, all the problems that we see going on around us, regardless of what's going on in our lives, um, one lesson that we really need to draw from this this evening is that God is in complete control. These events were not just haphazard things that occurred. You know, no, Jesus was orchestrating these things. He knew exactly what was going on. And if Jesus was able to do these things, you know, he's able to sort our own lives out too. You know, we're dealing with the creator of everything. That means he knows everything about our lives, past, present, and future. You know, and we need not to worry. It's hard, and we, we go through all sorts of situations um, in our lives where we, we are in that state where naturally we would doubt, we would question, and we're not sure. Um, but as we start to see how much in control of all of these things Jesus has been, um, then it should just give us a real confidence that we can trust God regardless of what we perceive to be the case on the surface. And uh, in, in continuation of that thought, uh, Matthew 28, verse 20, we just read where, where Jesus says to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
That's a great promise. And then this, this other one from Hebrews, I love this. Let your conversation, that's your, not just the things we say, but our, our lifestyle, our attitude. Uh, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such, such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a promise. That's a promise that we have as believers, that God will never leave us or forsake us. But it's interesting that that, that verse starts, let your conversation be without covetousness. Now what is that? That's when we're in those little pickles and we think, if only we had this, if only we were that, or if you're in this position, this wouldn't be a problem. That's covetousness. It's wanting something that we don't have. And, and Paul, we believe, is the writer to the Hebrews, makes this comment, you know, that... that don't want for things. Just trust that God will provide. God will do uh, all that you need because he's promised he's never going to leave us or forsake us. Okay, so without any further ado, let's go into chapter 7. We read, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Well, um, we need to comment a little bit. This, this is one of uh, John's meta-touters. Uh, those who have been studying the book of Revelation will no doubt have come across that phrase, meta-touter. In the book of Revelation, it's very much a marker uh, of the various sections of the book. Um, but also in the Gospel of John, we find this phrase repeat time and time again. And we have it again. Now, we can't, in a sense, say after these things without just talking a little bit about what after which things. Because we're then told, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. What is the situation? Well, if you remember from the, the last study, uh, Jesus had been teaching in Capernaum. He'd kind of come over uh, the lake and he'd been teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. Um, and he'd basically stated his terms and conditions. If you remember, uh, we looked last time where Jesus said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In other words, we could, we could phrase that, except you repent and are born again. You see, the eating of the, the flesh is uh, analogous to the whole idea of repentance. It's being identified with Christ's body, which was sacrificed in our place. If we understand why his body was sacrificed, it was on account of our sin. That obviously necessitates, if we to truly partake, if we eat of his body, it means we've got to understand that we are sinners and we need to repent. And that should therefore bring about a changed lifestyle. Um, the blood speaks of new life. Blood, The life of the flesh is in the blood, we're told in Leviticus. So, um, these ideas really all just stem around this whole concept that we read throughout the New Testament of repentance and then being born again. And we saw uh, so much of that in chapter 3 of this study. Um, so Jesus kind of had laid out his terms and conditions. And we'd also been told, John chapter 6 verse 4, that Passover was nigh. Uh, and after that comment, we then have all the events that we looked at in chapter 6 um, last time. Now, obviously, Jesus, as he would have done, had gone up to the feast uh, and no doubt caused a stir, uh, as we're going to see again occurs this evening. Uh, Hence, the Jews in Judea had sought to plot his death. That's why uh, he returned to Galilee to get away from these people. It wasn't he was frightened of them, but it was all about a timing issue again. So verse 2 we read, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now, we need to just briefly comment on this again. Um... Jesus had returned to Galilee after uh, the Passover that we just mentioned. We believe that had been the third Passover of his ministry. Now, John has given us real snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry to this point. Um, by jumping now to this Feast of Tabernacles, we're actually jumping forward roughly seven months in terms of the narrative uh, that John has given us here. Um, this is going to put this roughly September, October of AD 32. Um, and actually, no, that's a mistake. It should be AD 31. I've put it wrong, the wrong date. It's AD 31. This would have been the last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus would have attended. 
Um, because next spring, as it would be, uh, as we're looking this evening, will be Jesus' final Passover, uh, the one that we often refer to as Passion Week. Uh, and we'll look at that. It's interesting to find that John actually devotes almost half the gospel to that one week. You see, everything is gearing up, getting ready for that week. And John is going to really, really focus very much on those events uh, that obviously led up to um, the, the Last Supper, the betrayal, uh, crucifixion, uh, and obviously resurrection as well. So um, we'll talk a little bit about the, the Feast of Tabernacles later. Obviously, it was one of the seven feasts, uh, and I'm sure some of you uh, are very familiar with those feasts. But we'll, just, we'll cover that later because uh, it comes up again. So but we carry on, and we read... Verse 3, his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Uh, First of all, we have his brethren, therefore. Uh, This is a verse that um, the Catholics will try and pretty much avoid and deny, but we're talking about his his relatives, his family here. Uh, Matthew 13, if you want to make a note, verses 55 to 56, is where we have listed the fact that Jesus had sisters and at least four half-brothers. Um, including Jude and James, who both wrote books in the New Testament. Um, so the whole concept that Mary remained a virgin clearly is unbiblical. Um, and so they're the brethren uh, that are referred to there. Um, we then find that they're saying, though, that his, his, his brothers at this point, and bear in mind that, that Jude and James did believe until after the resurrection, so they're kind of very sceptical, they're seeing all these things going on. Um, and they're saying, well, why don't you go up then to Judea? You know, you want to be famous, go up there. Uh, the, thy disciples, well, who are they referring to? Well, that's not the twelve. These have been the disciples that referred to, uh, again, John chapter 2, verse 23, John chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus had been up in, up in Jerusalem uh, previous times, there had been people that had believed in him and trusted in him there. Uh, they are the disciples that are being referred to here. So they're saying, you go up there. For those that believed you in the past, you know, you can see them again. He goes on, um, for there is no man the, that does anything in secret, um, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. They're, they're doing the, the, the worldly thing. You know, you want to be famous, go and play to your capacity audiences. You know, go where the money is. That's the kind of worldly mentality, and that's what they're suggesting to Jesus. Um, Um, But obviously, as we've already said, Jesus had come for one reason alone, and that was to do his Father's will. Um, And whilst to his brethren, this not going up uh, to start with may have seemed strange to them, we need to understand that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God doesn't do things the way that we think they should be done. Okay, again, the world's way is uh, push and shove. Uh, you, know, you push your way to the top. Um, but if God is orchestrating things, we can wait. Uh, give you an idea of God's way, we read in First Peter chapter 5, um, picking up verse 5. It says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. How many times have we seen people in so-called Christian ministry just kind of force their way to the top? You know, pushing people aside, doesn't matter. You know, if God is blessing a ministry, then God will exalt it in due time if he so chooses. If he doesn't choose, then don't try and exalt it without his assistance. And yet so often we see those kind of things. In Psalm 75, we read there, For promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge, and he puts down one and sets up another. Well, that should make us realize how futile it is to try and promote our own causes. 
you know, again, if it's the Lord that's building the house, then that's great. But if it's not, your labour will be in vain. Um, and there's, there's nothing, I, I think, that, it, that is less attractive um, than, uh, than seeing somebody who's supposedly a believer um, with a kind of arrogant, push everybody aside, you know, this is my mission, I'm doing this, whatever. You know, we should be submitting to one another. We're all part of one body, every part doing its share. That's what the Word of God tells us in Ephesians. Anyway, uh, verse 6, we then read, Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come. So important. We're going to see this reiterated uh, time and time again. Um, that Jesus is looking forward to a specific day. And this is what the book of John now is building up to. We're going to start to re- see it reach this crescendo. Um, but then he then says to his disciples, uh, But your time... Uh, is always ready. Um, you know, in contrast, you know, to Jesus having to wait for a specific time. And, and for us, we don't have to wait for a specific thing. There's a lot of Christians that seem to have this kind of, well, God's doing something with me, and when I get to that point, then I'll serve him, or then I'll do this. No, no, now is the point. We, we tend to see it that we're, we're kind of on a long journey, we're waiting to reach that destination. Um, there's, you know, lots of, of good Bible commentators that have basically said that it's not the, the journey, or sorry, it's not the destination that's the important thing. It's the journey. This is where God wants us. This is where God has got us for now. You see, none of us know when it is that the Lord is going to come back for us. And, and we may have this, God is doing this, and in a few years we're going to be, no, no, we don't know. And we're foolish in that sense to plan too far ahead. Um, we need to let the Lord lead us and guide us. Um, and in that sense, our time is always ready. This is... a Right now is a moment for us to be where we should be with the Lord. Tomorrow is another moment. We shouldn't be thinking, well, you know, when I've done a bit more study, then I'll be prepared to talk to those people at work. You know, or when I'm in a situation, when I'm talking to somebody, you know, I need to do a bit more study. No, no, get involved now. Get talking to people. You'll be surprised what God will do through you if only you'll make yourself available. So uh, we carry on. Um, Jesus says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. We've talked about this in a previous session, that the world has this kind of this hatred of, of Christianity, and we, we see it coming to the fore more and more. But it's not really of us, it's of Jesus. You see, if we were to, to give in and do things their way, as many in the, the so-called church are doing, then the pressure stops. So it's not about us. It's about the message, and it's about the one whom we're representing or should be representing as Christians. And, and then Jesus says, uh, I think this is, this is great, uh, Go you uh, up unto this feast. Uh, I go not up yet. That's so important because there are, there are books written on the fact that, oh, well, see, Jesus went up to the feast, but he said he's not going up, so therefore he lied. No, he said he's not going up yet. If only these critics could learn to read, um, it would be be so much better for all of us. Um, He said, I'm not going up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. So his brothers obviously go up, and we read verse 10. But when his brethren were gone up, um, then went he uh, also up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Again, just keeping a low profile. Uh, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? So they're expecting him to be there, obviously. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. And others, nay, but he deceives the people. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. 
Now, we'll see that amplified next month uh, in the next session because uh, we're going to see in John 9.22 that the Jews had threatened to put out of the synagogue anybody that spoke in favour of Jesus. Uh, and obviously this idea was already uh, very clearly known amongst the people that they were, they were fearful of what the Jews would do to them and that it had a profound effect on their ability to earn and all these other things. We'll talk about it uh, in the next session. Um, but clearly people were a little bit cautious about what they said and uh, we find lots of believers today that are a little bit like that. They don't want to quite tip their hand, you know, and say, well, actually, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus is the only way, um, sadly. Anyway, we carry on. Uh, verse 14. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how knows this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Wow. This this first part here, this uh, idea that that the Jews say in verse 15, uh, Jesus marvels saying, how knoweth this man letters? Uh, There's a a similar kind of thing in... um, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, uh, where Peter and John are there, uh, and the Jews comment that they are untrained and uneducated men, uh, but they've been with Jesus. Uh, that's the difference that Jesus can make in our lives. Uh, it's not about our education. It's not about our ability. It's about his ability. It's about whether we're prepared to yield ourselves to him. And in this case, Jesus had been prepared to yield himself to his Father's will. Um, and clearly, he'd grown up loving the word of God, reading scriptures. Um, and he's now just speaking that which is on the inside. Um, I love uh, what David says in Psalm 119. You know, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That, that implies kind of memorizing scripture. Um, uh, just not getting too much of a tangent, but um, there's lots of uh, some of the old um, Bible greats, as it were, that actually memorize big, big chunks of scripture. Um, including uh, what somebody had actually memorized the whole of the book of Psalms, uh, I recall reading. Um, and I think it was a guy, Robert D. Wilson, had uh, memorized all of the New Testament uh, in Greek. Uh, and, you know, you think of these people, you know, it's incredible what you can do, what the, the human mind and the brain can do if only you set your mind to it and you're prepared to study. You know, and if you've got that in there, what a difference that would make on a daily basis. Um, um, most of us will probably know what happened yesterday with the football or what's happening with some of the soap operas or this or that or whatever else it be. You know, and it's simply because we allow those things into our minds. So they kind of they stay there. Um, but we need to let the things of God permeate our life in everything. Verse 18 then says, um, He that speaks, and clearly Jesus was sort of saying there that uh, his doctrine is of God. This is what we said at the start, that uh, he wasn't promoting himself, he was just doing what God had called him to do. He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory, uh, but he that seeks the glory of him that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. What a great lesson for any of us uh, that seek to serve the Lord, that we don't promote ourselves, that we seek his glory. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why go you about to kill me? And the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goes about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work and you all marvel. Now we need to make some comments here. Um, firstly, um, Jesus really is coming to the root of the antagonism here um, by taking them back to an event that occurred about a year and a half earlier, which we looked at in chapter 5, which was the, the event at the pool of Bethesda. 
Now, that wasn't some random event, as we said at the time. Jesus specifically went to that man. He knew that man would be there. He specifically goes to this man, and he heals him on a Sabbath day. And it creates all sorts of commotion. Uh, and obviously, the, the, the Jewish leaders are outraged by this. Um, you know, because they're, they're seeing that he's breaking the law and everything else. Um, and Jesus now says to them, you know, did not Moses give you the law? And yet, none of you keeps the law. So he's saying, you know, you're, you're, compl- you're moaning at me because you're saying I don't keep the law. Because they were saying you've not kept the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, but you don't keep the law. So why do you try and kill me? You know, what, what right have you got in that sense? And the people answered and says, you know, that was a devil. You know, you, you, you must be mad. We're not trying to kill you. We'll see later that others were aware that there were the, 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 these threats against him by the Jews and the Jewish leadership. Um, and again, verse 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work and you all marvel. Again, that being that work at the pool of Bethesda. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. Uh, if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Okay, so Jesus is now again addressing this question of whether he actually broken the law anyway. An example he's giving is the fact that Moses had given them this, this right of circumcision, although he points out actually it was from Abraham, it predates the law. Um, and that was, if that was to take place on the Sabbath day, because circumcision had to be on the eighth day, and obviously you couldn't plan for that not to be on the Sabbath, some days that would happen to be on the Sabbath day, um, the Jews would do that. So Jesus is saying, look, you do that. So what's wrong with me healing somebody that had been infirm for 38 years? Again, no doubt they were stumped. And, and then Jesus says, verse 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You know, men are very quick to judge. And you know, it's the appearance of things that causes men to jump to conclusions. That's what makes us come to the conclusion we do because of the way we perceive things on the, on the surface, you know, maybe the way somebody looks, maybe a certain set of circumstances that we can see from our perspective must be this because. So we judge according to appearance. But Jesus says that we shouldn't judge that way. Um, but he's not saying don't judge at all, but he's saying judge righteous judgment. Okay? In other words, according to God's heart. Verse 25, then said some of them of Jerusalem... Is, not, is, is this not he who they seek to kill? So again, just clarifying that some of them obviously were aware of these death threats against him. Verse 26, But lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? So, you know, they're perplexed. You know, this is the one they want to kill, and yet he's speaking publicly, and nobody's doing anything. Why is that? Well, ultimately, it's because God has the timetable. And as we'll see as we go through the study this evening, even if they'd have wanted to, which in a while they do, they're powerless to do anything because God is working to his timetable. In verse 27, Howbeit we, uh, we know this man, uh, whence he is. In other words, we know Jesus, we know where he's come from. But when Christ comes, no man knows where he is. Hmm. Well, once again, we get a lack of understanding of the scriptures. See, according to the scriptures, the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born where? Bethlehem, yeah, we know that from Micah 5 2. Um, and of the lineage of David uh, from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, and that's clarified for us in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Um, we also know prophetically that he would be called out of Egypt, that he'd be raised in Galilee, that's Isaiah 9, uh, first two verses, and Matthew makes comment of that in Matthew 4. Uh, he would be called a Nazarene, Matthew makes comment of that in Matthew 2, 23. Um, and in addition, he would be born of a virgin, that's from Isaiah 7. So 
there was a lot of things that the people knew about this man when he came, all of which Jesus fulfilled. So they're saying, well, we know all about Jesus, but when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know anything about him, so he can't be the Messiah. Well, again, it was a lack of understanding of scriptures that led them to the wrong conclusion. Verse 28, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. And in case we, we miss the, the relevance of what Jesus is saying, um, then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. We'll comment on that in a moment. Uh, I just want to read something from, from Adam Clark in his commentary. Um, he, he says in, in rega- regard to those verses there, verse 28 and 29, he says, perhaps they should be read uh, interrogatively. You know, do you both know me and you know where I am? In, implying, you know, do you really know? Our Lord takes them up on their own profession and argues from it. Since you've got so much information concerning me, add this to it and make it complete. Namely, that I'm not come of myself uh, and no self-centered or self-authorized prophet. I came from God. The testimony of John the Baptist, the descent of the Holy Spirit, the voice from heaven, the purity and excellence of my doctrine, and the multitude of my miracles sufficiently attest to this. Now God is true, who has borne testimony to me, but you know him not. Therefore, it is this testimony uh, that is disregarded. I thought it was quite good, because that's really just, just kind of putting it all in a nutshell. There was so much evidence that Jesus had already given them. But they didn't want to believe. But again, don't miss what's going on here. Jesus is saying clearly that he's come from God. And he says, I know him and I'm from him and he has sent me. Now, just we kind of get into this, you know, yeah, okay, so Jesus is saying he's God. But just think about it. If Jesus was not God, what a claim for somebody to try and make. To say that they've been sent from God, uh, you know, that they know God. All of these kind of things that Jesus says. You know, it's way beyond that which a prophet would dare to say. Um, Jesus is saying he's come specifically been sent from God. Uh, that he's come from God. All, all these things that are repeated time and time again. Uh, and just again, um, they sought to lay hands on him. Could you imagine a situation where people were so cross with you that they, they, they wanted to wring your neck and that they couldn't touch you? It, it just it, it defies kind of a natural explanation as to why they couldn't do it. But for some reason, they weren't able to. Something prevented them. And the reason we're given is because his hour was not yet come. Again, I keep hammering this point because we're building up to a crescendo. Jesus was not going to allow anything. God the Father was not going to allow anything until his appointed time. We've got a specific prophecy that is going to be fulfilled on a specific day. And we're getting ready for it as we go through the Gospel of John. Verse 31. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ comes, will he do more miracles than these, uh, these which this man has done? Again, looking at the, the miracles that he'd done. Um, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. The Pharisees uh, and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Well, before we comment on that, let's just, just go back there. Because they're saying, look at the miracles that he's done. Surely that's evidence. We need to be extremely careful. that uh, We don't get mistaken by looking for the miraculous as proof of something. We've seen all sorts of uh, groups within the church follow after signs and wonders. If our basis is in those kind of things, we can very easily be led astray. Uh, Bear in mind that uh, the devil is going to deceive the world with lying signs and wonders. 
through the people, uh, Antichrist and the false prophet, who will be raised up. The world is going to be deceived by these people, by miraculous signs. So we need to be very, very cautious that we don't get into miracles, signs, wonders, all those kind of things. You know, if they confirm the word of the Lord, great. But if it's not in accord with the word of God, dismiss it straight away. However impressive it may be. You know, in Deuteronomy, we're told there of a test of a false prophet. And we're told that there will be people that can actually do miracles. And God will allow these things to come to pass. But God says he will do it to test you. Again, it comes back to our understanding of the word of God. That is our safeguard. Okay. Um, Now, verse 32 again. The the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So uh, they're now sending their own people out, their own guard out to go and get this guy and bring him back to them. Not a particularly difficult task, you'd think. Well, we carry on. Then Jesus said to them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. Just before we go on to the next part there, these officers now that have come to Jesus, they're standing before Jesus, and Jesus is faithfully saying to them, um, Yet a little while, and I am with you. And then I go. Now, the, the sense of the Greek is that he's actually going. This is actually kind of present tense. I am actually going to my father right now. Uh, this is on the, 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 the journey that Jesus is on. And, and they're looking at this man that's speaking in front of them. They can't perceive it. It's almost like a, something's going on in an extra dimension that they can't quite grasp here. He says, you shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, there you cannot come. Well, Jesus is standing in front of them. So where is he? Again, clearly, um, they, they wrestle with that. They can't understand it. And we'll, we'll see that picked up in just a moment. Verse 35, we carry on. Then said the Jews among themselves, Where will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this? That he said, You shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, there you cannot come. Okay, verse 37. Um, we then get in the last... Uh, The last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Okay, so this Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day festival, uh, and then typically there'd be the eighth day of assembly, as it's referred to, uh, Leviticus 23, um, 34 through 43, uh, give you details about uh, all this feast. Um, and we get to this, this last day. Uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about this now. Um, first of all, um, this eighth day now, we're, we're just going to give you some of the, the backgrounds uh, of this. The Feast of Tabernacles was specifically designed, they were going to get branches, they build these booths, these temporary dwellings, and they dwell in them for this week to remember the wilderness wanderings. That was the purpose of it. Most of their feasts were to to look or remind them of things that God had accomplished for them as a nation. And obviously there's all sorts of prophetic uh, sides to that as well. But just from a a practical point of view, they were to remind them of all that God had done for them. So they would be dwelling in these temporary dwellings um, for this time. And during the feast, they would uh, pour water. We'll talk a bit about this in in a while. Uh, They would pour out water in memory of the, the water that came out of the rock at Horeb. Uh, you remember it. Let's, let's just take a look at some of those scriptures just to give a bit of background. Uh, back in Exodus 17, 
And verses 5 and 6, we read, The Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smote uh, the river, uh, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come out of it, uh, sorry, there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So the people were thirsty, they had no drink, they were complaining again, Lord, you know, yeah, I know you've done the Red Sea and you've done this and you've done that, but you know, just like we do, isn't it? God's done incredible things in our lives, we get another problem, it's like, well, Lord, you can't cope with this one. Same situation, Um, but God does this incredible thing. Now, um, this whole episode uh, that was going on there um, in uh, Rephidim, where this rock was and everything else, um, it's it's a real kind of lesson on rest. The, The specific rock God identifies, he, he says which rock it's to be. And God tells Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock. And Moses, as we saw, was told to strike the rock specifically. What do we know about the rock? Well, Paul will tell us. Um, in fact, we'll look at that scripture in a moment. But firstly, just for uh, Psalm 78, we read, uh, he split the rock in the wilderness. So obviously it wasn't just, it was struck, but it actually split and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought out streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And again, what I was going to say a moment ago from Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul is saying that that rock that was there in the wilderness, in, in some form, is, is idiomatic of Christ. Now, just carrying on with this whole idea of this rock, uh, God said obviously he would stand there. Um, Horeb is, it means desert, uh, and you see clearly that that rock is identified as being uh, a type of Jesus. Uh, God stands on the rock, and Jesus is, if you like, the only foundation for rest. Uh, Moses was uh, told to go on before the people, and obviously this was going to be done before all the people that were going to be there. Um, he was told, take with you some of the elders of Israel. Uh, the elders are obviously going to be the key witnesses there, uh, to take the rod in your hand. But, and obviously the rod was a symbol of the law. Um, and this rod is a symbol of the authority of the law. And he's told you shall strike the rock. Um, so the authority of the law strikes the rock. Well, how are we to see that? Well, clearly that Christ was struck by the law in our place. who had broken the law. See, we deserve judgment under the law. But Christ was struck by this rock, by this rod, as a, as a, as a sign in a sense of, being, uh, of what we should have had. We should have had that judgment upon us. Um, I couldn't resist, resist just throwing this in for you. Um, I'm just going to ask Mike just to pass me. Um, this is obviously the, the traditional map you'll find in the back of your Bibles, and all your Bible maps will tell you that that's Mount Sinai there uh, in the Sinai uh, Peninsula. It's uh, baffled people for many years because there's no evidence that people ever dwelt there in any kind of large numbers, and a lot of people have said, well, look, of course, that just proves that the Exodus didn't really happen, and it's just a kind of a, uh, a nice, quaint story. Well, um, there's been a lot of research done in modern times, um, and there's now a very, very, very compelling argument to, tell, to say that the, the, the Mount, Mount Sinai, is actually here in Midian. One of the most compelling reasons for that is that's what the Bible says. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Well, this bit here has never been Arabia. This 
is Arabia. And obviously, this was the area, if you remember, that Moses, when he fled Egypt, comes around here, and he tends sheep for his father-in-law. And where does he take them? To the backside of the desert. And when he's in Midian, up the mountain, he sees the burning bush, and God says, bring the people back to this mountain. So the suggestion that it brought them here just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, um, and just moving on, um, there's, there's conjecture as to, to where they went in terms of the route from the Exodus. Uh, I believe they were told to go along the way of the, the, the Philistines and turn off that route. I believe they, they were going off, this would have been the way back to the promised land that, that Moses was kind of aiming, or possibly to bring them obviously to this place. That would have been the easiest route. But he's told to turn off, and he comes in here, and they get ensnared in the desert. And there's a very interesting piece of uh, land there. It's a big outcrop. You can see it uh, looking down from these uh, satellite views. Uh, When you actually look very closely, you see there's actually a pathway that comes right the way through. Now, clearly, if this is the site that Moses took them to, this, bear in mind, is part of the Red Sea. This is known as the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, this would be, uh, clearly, they'd have been enclosed by the desert. They wouldn't have been any way out. You could see the fear for them uh, if they were in this position. That's actually the, the land uh, bit that juts out there. Um, this this huge uh, area. And uh, what's very interesting is, uh, under the water, at this point, there is a natural land bridge. Um, so it's the, the rest of the, the, the ocean floor down there, or the sea floor, is very, very deep, all apart from this area. And if you look at uh, nautical maps of that area, you can actually see it verified. Um, my brother, who is far more clever with computers than I, um, has downloaded one of the new Google things. And you can actually do an underwater thing with one of the new Google Earth um, things. And you can actually go underwater, effectively, it's kind of virtual simulation. Uh, and you can actually see that the contour raise up at this point, and if you come up at the point it raises, you find it's just at, the, at this point. Uh, there's also, there's conjecture regarding this, but there was a, um, two big um, pillars that were found, dating to around about the time of King Solomon, uh, that were found, one either side, believed to be marking the crossing point of the Red Sea. So uh, it's not, not proved, don't need to build doctrine on it, but it's just an interesting uh, conjecture. What we do know, or what we, I say we do know, it seems to be beyond uh, doubt from the evidence, is that they would have then, once they're over this side, they'd have followed this way path through to this area here. You can see a clearance here. Uh, this is where the rock would have been uh, and the area where they were encamped at uh, Rephidim. Um, this is the, the ridge of what we believe is Mount Horeb coming down there. And uh, then they would eventually, after they'd left this point, they'd have come round this side, down here, to this big area here, a camp, the big camp at Sinai. Now, I haven't got time to go into all of that this evening, but couldn't resist just zooming in on that bit at Rephidim, uh, this area here. Uh, it's a very large area. Clearly, the, 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 the numbers we're talking about, a couple of million people, um, possibly 600,000 men, we're told, plus women and children. Um, clearly, there'd have been enough room for them. As we zoom in, you can just about see... That there's a kind of a shadow being cast here. It's a very dark bit. It's a shadow being cast. It's being cast by. That's the coordinates if you want to look at it. Um, shadow being cast by this big rock, rock which stands about 60, 70 feet tall. Okay, uh, that's there. As you can see, that rock is split. If we uh, zoom in and have a closer look at that rock, um, you can see that it's split from top to bottom. Bear in mind that the picture doesn't do it justice. It's huge. What's very interesting is there's incredible amounts of erosion around this rock going all the way down. And this is an area that they hardly have any rainfall. Now, the kind of amounts of water required to produce that much erosion, there's no natural explanation as to how, much, how, how that much water occurred in that area at that particular point. 
without getting everything else. So I'll leave it with you. So it's not doctrine, but it's, it's very exciting. Um, and there's a, there's a lot more evidence in that area um, uh, to, to kind of support uh, this hypothesis, as it were. So, But we carry on. Um, because that was one episode uh, where Moses was told to strike the rock. Later in Moses' ministry, um, in fact we read about it in Numbers 20, they're camped at Kadesh. Moses at that time was told to speak to the rock. Now he's very angry with the people of Israel and he goes and gets the rod again, which is probably sprouting um, you know, leaves and almonds and all these other kind of things that we read about. Um, and this time, rather than speak to the rock, which is what he's commanded, he strikes the rock. Okay, which again, uh, Numbers 20 verse 11 and as a result of this, it seems so harsh to us if we don't understand why, Moses is told that he's not going to enter the promised land. Now that does seem harsh until we see what God was doing. God was building a model. You see, the first time, the rock who was Christ was smitten. The second time, it's not going to be smitten. The second time, when Christ returns, he's going to set up his kingdom and rule. Okay, so this, this incredible typology, and Moses broke that because he wasn't obedient. It's just a little detail, but it just underlines to us how important it is if we believe God calling us to do something or to do whatever, how obedient we must be. Because his plan is so much bigger than our understanding of these things. Okay, let's now get, get back on to track with our study. The last day of the feast, what they, during the, the, the first seven days of the feast, they would go down to the pool of Silo and they'd send, that's what Silo means sent, uh, they'd send somebody down to, to the pool um, to get water, one of the priests, and they'd bring water back, a few, a few pints of water, and they'd pour it out on the altar in memory of this water that came out of this rock. On the last day, they would still send somebody down there, but they wouldn't draw any water. They'd come back with this empty container um, in, to indicate that their thirst was not yet satisfied, i.e. that Messiah was not yet come. Okay, uh, And they'd also uh, read from Isaiah 12, apparently. And uh, this is what Isaiah 12 uh, says. This is the bit they'll be reading. Um, and picture yourself in Jerusalem at this time, this last day of the feast. The priest has just come up with this empty vessel. And uh, they're reading, Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And that's all going on. And then, Jesus, we read, in the last day of the feast, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, this is a loud declaration. Now, just imagine all these things going on. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. You can imagine all the Pharisees turn around and go, here he goes again. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And uh, we have this editorial comment by John. He says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So John, with the benefit of hindsight, gives us that bit of explanation as well. Um, but again, Jesus is addressing not the, the natural thirst we have, but the spiritual thirst. Something that's far greater. People will try and satisfy their thirst in all sorts of ways. And we have natural thirst in, in our lives for various things. Um, but the real root of it all is our spiritual thirst. Verse 40, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. 
Well, again, we've, we've looked already. There were, they believed that there would be that prophet, the one that would come like Moses. And they're saying this must be that one because of what Jesus is saying, these, these parallels. Others said, this is the Christ. You see, there was the idea that there was that prophet, somebody like Moses. Then there was the Messiah. And they also believed that Elijah was coming as well. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? <laughs> Um, well, yes, that's what the scriptures have said. Um, Hath not the scripture said that Christ comes of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? Well, again, yes, he came out of Bethlehem, of the seed of David, and he also came from Galilee. Again, if only they'd have put all these things together. Earlier on, they're saying, we know all about this now, and we know where he's come from. And they're saying, but we don't know about the Christ. Now they're saying, well, actually, yeah, we do know lots about the Christ. And it, anyway, um, so there was division among them because of him. You know, Jesus will always bring division. Um, Jesus himself said that. Uh, we, we shouldn't be surprised if people are against us for our understanding, our stand uh, for him. Verse 44, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, why have you not brought him? The officers said, Never man spake like this man. So these officers have been sent to get Jesus, have been standing listening to all this, and they come back and go, wow. And they get back there, and the, the, the Pharisees saying, saying, yeah, why haven't you brought him? And he says, well, nobody speaks like this man speaks. So I'll just, again, to make note of verse 44 there, no man laid hands on him. Again, this is kind of, they can't touch him. Um. Verse 44, um, sorry, we did that. Verse 47, uh, then answers uh, them the Pharisees, talking to the, their officers that have just come back, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Well, that's proof for sure, isn't it? Yeah, if the Pharisees don't believe in him, then it can't be true. Uh, and we get people like that today, don't we, that use their kind of their badge or their, their status to say, well, you know, you can't believe in that. It can't be true because, you know, well, I'm this or that or the other. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. But these people who know not the law, are cursed. Well, this is this is quite funny, to be honest, because they say that they're saying these people, these ignorant people out there. This is the Pharisee speaking, saying these ignorant people they don't know the law, so they're cursed. Yeah, but so are those that do know the law, because we read in Galatians three ten, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Well, clearly, that puts everybody in the same boat. So these Pharisees are kind of saying, well, they don't know the law, so they're cursed. Well, yeah, but you do know the law, so you're cursed as well. So that's a stupid comment for them to say, really. But, but then Nicodemus says, verse 50, Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our Lord judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered him and said unto him, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went unto his house. Uh, well, every, you know, there's, there's you know, no prophet from Galilee except Jonah and Nahum. Capernaum is named after Nahum. And these, these people that are supposed to be the religious leaders have no concept of the word of God. Does that kind of ring any bells with today's church? So, chapter 8, we read, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. I think rather than dwelling somewhere, probably Jesus spent that night in prayer. Uh, we're not told specifically, but we're just told he went to the Mount of Olives. Everyone else had gone back to their own homes. And then verse 2, early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And by the way, that's the way it used to be done. Uh, the teacher would sit down and everyone else would stand. Um, <laughs> verse 3, and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. 
And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Um, got a problem here. What's missing? The man. It takes two to tango. In um, Leviticus verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 10, we read, uh, And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer, notice, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So, clearly there's no man brought here. So this whole thing is just, just a big setup. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. This is what they're saying to Jesus. But what do you say? Well, we read verse 6. This, uh, they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Before we just carry on. Clearly, if Jesus had answered and said, well, yeah, you should stone them. Or you should stone this woman according to the law of Moses. He'd have been in breach of civil law. Because at that time, they were under Roman occupation. They did not have the right to put somebody to death. So but if Jesus had said to them then, well, no, you shouldn't put this woman to death because the civil law says we shouldn't, he's in breach of Moses' law. You see, there are times that we're in a predicament that we cannot see a way out of. And in the natural sense, that's where we would have been. That was a no-win situation for Jesus. There was no way he could answer that question in the way they wanted by saying either do this or do that and have been right. It was a lose-lose. And sometimes we find ourselves in those situations, and that's when we really need to seek the Lord, seek his guidance, his wisdom. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. This is great. So calm, so composed, he's not worried about the thing. Obviously, there's lots of questions uh, about what was written. Um, we don't know, is the answer. Uh, my, my favorite conjecture is that he started writing out the Ten Commandments. The reason I think that's interesting is because it's the only other time we find in Scripture that the finger of God writes. Okay, so there is the writing on the wall, but that we don't know that that could have been an angel. It doesn't specifically say uh, that was the Lord. But clearly the Lord wrote with his finger on the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is writing with his finger here. So it could be, um, and certainly the law would have brought conviction. As if that was the case, that they're seeing these laws written out. You know, they're looking and thinking, yeah, well, I might have done that, but yeah, I've done that. And, you know. We read on, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. Now, again, it could have been that the, the oldest ones had a, a longer list, so they were convicted more, so they just thought, no, I can't stay. Uh, it could have been that the, the younger ones were more uh, arrogant, uh, and there could have been pride there, so they stayed longest, whatever the reasons. Uh, they, they clearly are all eventually convicted by their conscience. The law of the Lord will do that. We're told in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul and Jesus effectively whether it was that which he was writing on the ground or just simply his reply they are confronted with God's righteous standard in the law and clearly none of them measure up so when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman he said unto her woman where are those thine accusers has no man condemned thee she said no man lord and Jesus said unto her neither do I condemn thee go and sin no more Jesus invites her to go and sin no more. It's not so much a command, it's an invitation. You are now free to go and sin no more. You see, Jesus doesn't say, go and try your best. Go and give it a go, try. You know, it's, it's, it's not about her ability anymore. 
It's about the ability which he will supply. That's the way it is for all of us. In Acts 26 verse 18, we're told that the process of sanctification is again the work of the Lord. Salvation, we have no part in that other than accept it. Sanctification is the same. You know, so often we, we get to that point where we're saved and then we try and work at it ourselves. We try and, 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 and become better. and you know, We won't do it and we get so frustrated when we try. We need to learn that it's the Lord that works in us. We just need to yield. We need to let God be on the throne of our hearts. I've said before, you can understand most things in this life if you understand two thrones. The throne of David and the throne in your own heart. If you understand those two issues, pretty much everything else falls into place. Was the woman guilty? Yeah, she was guilty. And how then could she be forgiven? How could Jesus say, "Go and sin no more"? You know, and your sins are, you know, uh, and, and neither do I condemn you, as He said. Well, effectively, it was through faith and trust in Jesus that was the only way that she could do this. And ultimately, her sin had to be paid for. And in about six months from now, it would be on that tree. Okay. Verse 12, then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whether I go. But you cannot tell me whether, uh, whence I come and whether I go. Well, first of all, verse 12 there. Uh, that's the second I am statement that we get in the, the Gospel of John. Um, the, uh, the I am the light of the world. And this, in a sense, is this reiteration of his mission statement. We saw it very clearly laid out in chapter 1. That Jesus had come, the world was in spiritual darkness. Jesus came to bear the light so that we could see our condition and realize how much we need a saviour. Uh, Jesus came to fulfil the law. What was the purpose of the law? To lead us to Christ. You know, to, to expose, as, as Paul says in Galatians, to confine us all under sin. That was the purpose of the law. Jesus came to show us this. Jesus was that light, exposing our darkness. Again, Jesus says, He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. Um, that's not a choice. If we follow him, there has to be this separation. There has to be a dying to the old way of life and walking to the new. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, verse 13, in a sense, starts by giving us three reasons that his witness is true. Um, and the, the first one uh, is kind of this big question that we have in life. You know, where, where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Well, Jesus is saying, I know all the answers to these things. You know, I know where I've come from. This is why I can testify, because I'm not in any state of, I'm not sure about. Jesus knew with, with absolute clarity and certainty. Verse 15, we read, um, You judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Well, again, this is another thing. Um, Jesus' judgment is true. And verse 16 says, Yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. Um, you see, if anyone judges according to the flesh, uh, he will naturally follow speculation, because that's how we reach our conclusions so often. Um, the Lord says here that he doesn't judge according to the flesh. He gives judgment that comes from heaven. He gives, if you like, God's viewpoint, uh, God's estimation of the circumstances. Uh, and this, the big difference is that is revelation. Okay? Uh, it differs from man's point of view. So we, we either have speculation on our part or revelation on God's part. That is the way we should judge based on revelation. 
verse 17 is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself and the father that sent me bears witness. So this is like the third thing now. That he's not only saying, you know, that... Um, uh, I, I know I'm certain about myself where I've come from, etc. My judgment is true. But also, I'm not witnessing of my, myself because the Father also is witnessing of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy Father? Jesus answered, uh, You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And again, we read, that No man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. This is repeating time and time and time again now. Verse 21, then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. What a terrible thing to hear. Whether I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? Because he says, whether I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. That's pretty clear, but no doubt was really starting to, to rile them. Verse 24 carries on. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, and actually he is in italics if you look in your Bibles, Jesus says, for if you believe not that I am. Oh, again, that's going to rub the Pharisees up the wrong way because the I am was the voice of the burning bush. Another declaration of his deity. If you believe not that I am, You should die in your sins. Well, again, there is only one way through Jesus. If you don't believe that Jesus is the I am, then you will die in your sins because there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said to you from the beginning. It's being declared from the beginning of time and from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Whichever beginning you choose to look at, it's been declared who Jesus is. I have many things to say and to judge of you. I get the impression that Jesus is saying, Look, I could say so much more. You know, in a sense, you could tie them up in knots and, and, and just confound them. But he goes on, he says, But he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. In other words, I'm only going to speak the things that he gives me to speak. They understood not that he spoke to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. Again, I am he. But uh, really, Jesus is saying, Then you shall know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. That's such an important thing. You know, we are to be transformed into the image of Christ. Jesus is saying he always does the things that please God. Could we say that of ourselves, that we always do the things that please God? It's a challenge, certainly for me, and I'm sure for all of us. Uh, In fact, we read Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, we are to be transformed into the image of his Son, and his Son always did the things that pleased the Father. What a challenge. But again, we're not trying to do it by our own effort. The Holy Spirit will empower us to do that. And again, I, I spent so many years trying to be the person that I thought God was calling me to be. And when I got to that point of giving up on my own efforts... That's when God really started to work in me. As he spoke these words, many believed on him. And then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my words, 
Then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's a lot of people that will quote that last part of the verse, but look what the prerequisite is. If you continue in my word. It's all about our relationship and our attitude to his word. And again, I encourage you to look at the uh, parable uh, in Matthew 13, verses 19 through 23, about the, the four soils. Uh, or the four seeds, if you like. Um, the soil effectively is the same as the four seeds. Um, and again, it's all dependent upon the word of God. Verse 33, they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? They're, they're objecting now. Jesus is saying they could be made free. They're saying, well, we've never been in bondage. Um, 400 years in Egypt, maybe, 111 years during the time of the judges. Uh, in 722, the northern kingdom was taken captive into Assyria. Uh, around about 606 BC, the, the Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. When they eventually came back, they then had 400 years with this power struggle between the Ptolemaic and the uh, Seleucid dynasties, what came out of Alexander the Great's kingdom. And they're saying, we've never been in bondage to any man. Yes, you have. It's a stupid statement again. Uh, And bear in mind, at the time of Christ, the time that they're saying this, they're in bondage to Rome. So it was a silly thing to say. But of course, the real issue is that they were in bondage to sin. And that's a bondage that they'd never been able to escape from. And Jesus goes on, he says, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in that house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's the, see, this is the thing. Sin is the one thing we can never escape from without Jesus Christ. Again, various deliverers had come and gone, but no one had ever set the, the Jews free. And again, the real issue is sin. Jesus is now presenting himself as the only one that can truly deliver them. Verse 37, uh, I know that you are Abraham's seed, Jesus says, you know, genetically, yeah, I know that you're related to him. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I've seen with my father, and you do that which you've seen with your father. Now the gloves are starting to come off. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I've heard of God. This did not Abraham. You see, we should bear a a resemblance, a strong family likeness to those who we are descended from. And they're claiming they're descended from Abraham, but they don't have this family likeness to Abraham in their attitudes and characteristics. Abraham obviously believed on the basis of faith. Well, they're not prepared to accept that here. Abraham was looking forward to the lamb who God was provide. Uh, and again, Abraham said it was in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, uh, clearly referring to Mount Moriah, the place that we know today as Golgotha and Calvary. Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, uh, we uh, be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Now they're questioning Jesus' parentage. Obviously there were stories abounding about the fact that Mary had given birth to Jesus before she was married. So they're now questioning this. And uh, and even the Talmud actually refers to Jesus as the illegitimate son of Mary. This was their, their perception. Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me. So they're claiming that God is their father. And he's saying, look, If God were your father, you'd love me, for I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he uh, that sent me. Um, sorry, you came before myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? 
again, is the word of God. So, so important. Ye are of your father, the devil. Well, that's now, that's kind of put it right out in the open, isn't it? And the lusts of your father you will do. Again, we bear a strong family likeness to those we're descended from. And if we are of this world, we will naturally have characteristics and attributes that demonstrate that ultimately we have come from a sinful stock. Okay, It's only when we are born again that we can then bear the family likeness to Jesus. And we're told here that he was a murderer from the beginning, talking of the devil, and abode not in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When was he a murderer? In the Garden of Eden. When he deceived Adam and Eve. I've put quite a lot in the notes on this if you want to dig into that a bit further. And because I tell you the truth, I'm sorry, let's just finish that off, sorry. Um, When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In fact, the whole of our predicament started with a lie in the garden when Satan caused Eve to doubt the word of God. Did God really say? And we see it today. Well, the, the Bible doesn't really mean that. You don't have to apply it literally, you know, and this is what we hear again. Verse 45, and because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? You know, look, if you've got some evidence, lay it out. Where have I sinned? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? So you can't convict me of sin. There's nothing you can convict me of. So why don't you believe me? And then verse 47, he says, He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. And they answered, the, uh, so then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and has a devil? Well, this is just, they've lost the argument. They've resorted to name-calling. That, that's all that's happened here. When, when, when you get that low, then you, you, you've lost. Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and you do dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeks and judges. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Again, about the words that Jesus is speaking. Then said the Jews unto him, Know we now that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Now, just again, I want to point out, if Jesus was not God, how could he say this? How could Jesus make the promise that if a man keep my saying, he's not going to die? There's no prophet in the Old Testament that would dare to say such a thing. Only God incarnate would be in a position to make a claim like this. They recognize, the Jews recognize clearly what Jesus is saying here. Um, and they go on and says, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? You see, they're recognizing what Jesus is saying here about this, this claim that if you keep his sayings, you're not going to taste of death. And they're saying, well, what about Abraham? You know, he's dead and the prophets are dead. Who on earth do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him, and if I should say I know him, uh, not I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And we know that, again, it's confirmed in the book of Hebrews, he did. He was looking forward to that time. And he saw it and was glad. Again, Abraham said, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? (laughs) Yeah, he did actually at the, the Oaks of Mamre visited him didn't he that's just one example of many jesus said unto them verily verily i say unto you before abraham was i am 
it's hard to imagine. I, I just love to have been there and seen this incredible exchange as Jesus is going back and forth with these Jewish leaders. They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to tie him up. They tried at the beginning of chapter 8 with that, that whole charade that they, they put on. You know, all the way through this, Jesus is gracefully just trying to tell them that I am the one. He doesn't get nasty as such with them. He tells them some home truths, but just tells them like it is. Before Abraham was, I am. They understand exactly what he was saying. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. And so passed by. You try that sometime. Try hiding from somebody and then walking right through the midst of them. See, there's something supernatural going on here. Jesus is not wanting to reveal himself before the right time. They can't touch him because his hour has not yet come. And each time he just slips away. Again, they're picking up stones because they want to, claim, they want to stone him for blasphemy. They understand what he's doing. They, they understand that he's claiming to be God. But again, they can't touch him because his hour has not yet come. And next session, we shall move a little bit closer to that hour. We won't get there next time, time after. But let's uh, bow our hearts for a closing word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth. And we thank you, Lord, for the relevance to us in our own situations, in our own lives. Lord, we pray that we would bear a strong family likeness to you, having been born again, um, born of the Spirit of God. And Lord, we pray that we would do the things that please you. Lord, oh, please help us uh, to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Father, also we pray that we would stand on your word, that we would believe your word, that your word would have just uh, the preeminent place in our hearts and minds and lives. Because, Lord, in doing so, Lord, you've promised to set us free. Oh, Lord, we desire to be free from the pressures and the, the, the bondage of this world. But, Lord, again, your word is that which contains the exceedingly great and precious promises that help us to know that we are seated with you in heavenly places. That, Lord, in one sense already, you've taken us out of this world. We're no longer part of this world. Lord, you said that you're not of this world. And Lord, we're now yours. You've called us. You've bought us at such a high price. Lord, may may we be so grateful of all that you've done. Live lives, Lord, desiring to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can spend this time together fellowshipping. We pray now that you be with us as we go from here. Keep us safe, Lord, we pray. But most importantly, keep us close to you. And keep us growing in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Saviour. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.